Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week we are picking out our best bits from 2022. Our longtime loyal listeners will know that I haven't been here in the hot seat for the entirety of the year. I went off this time 2021 to have a baby. She is now a one year old toddling about being cute as a button. I did spend a good bit of that time with my daughter, Danny, not listening to too much news, but I did enjoy the highlights of the explainer each week. So as always, thank you for listening throughout the year with me. We love this podcast and like to think the feeling is mutual. Before we kick off today, though, I would like to particularly thank those listeners who have supported us over the past 12 months. Here at The Journal, our aim is to keep you all well informed by providing you with relevant, reliable, meaningful journalism. And we believe we're all better off if we make all of that, our articles, these podcasts and everything else we do, available to everyone, regardless of their ability to pay for information. This podcast, as you all well know, plays a big part in that by talking with experts who break down news topics so well that you end up knowing how to explain them to your own pals in real life. We're asking listeners like you then to support us so we can continue to provide this helpful context for everybody. Over 5,000 people have already stepped up and if that is you, again, thank you so, so much. If it's not, you can join them for the price of a coffee a week. You can support us to keep making the explainer. Just go to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute and you can choose between a monthly or one-off donation there. Now, on to the episode. For this best of program, our presenters and producers are going to pick out some of the facts and information from this year's episodes that helped us to understand something better or made us sit up and just go, huh. Since January, we've covered everything from climate change to Ireland's tax system, Elon Musk and Garth Brooks to the Qatar World Cup. So that's where I'm going to start from my clip, and it's from quite a recent episode. For me, the weirdest thing that has happened in 2022 is that Argentina won the Football World Cup on Sunday, and the following Sunday was Christmas Day. How did that happen? Once Qatar were given the nod to host the tournament, it became clear their summer was going to be way too hot for footballers or fans to handle. So the entire footballing calendar was shifted to facilitate the £200 billion event in Doha. Before he got on a plane to fly to the city, the 42's Gavin Cooney stopped by to talk us through the dark and dodgy history of that FIFA decision to award the World Cup to Qatar and why the country even wanted it in the first place. I mean, mean, the people organising will say yes, that they have a big passion for football. But in reality, no, it's a small population. I mean, they, they, could t- they have no real history of achievement in their national team has no real history of achievement. Qatar does have a small football league, but it's poorly supported. Uh, I don't mean to sound flippant when I say it, but like generally it's the working population in a country that will su- go and support football and the working population in Qatar are generally always working. Like they don't have time to go to see football. So they have no real history of football, whether it's popular as a for expat, wealthy expats to watch on television, Probably is, uh, but in terms of on the ground, no, not not massively. So then the next question follows, why is Qatar doing this? Why did it want the World Cup? It's about the $250 billion question, I think. I mean, a lot of people think we'll use the phrase sports washing and think that this is Qatar sports washing its image. So sports washing is, has been defined as regimes using the vehicle of sport to launder and improve their image and kind of scrub away the images of uh, outrages at home or obscenities at home. And I think that is part of it, but I think it overlooks, it is complex and multi-layered, but effectively sport in Qatar is one plank of their nation building. 
So Qatar is this tiny country. Um, it's a it's smaller than Cork and Kerry put together, but it's also sitting on a gold mine in terms of uh, oil and an enormous natural gas reserves that you know it has made them as the wealthiest country in the world GDP per capita. But that gives them power, but they're also strategically very vulnerable. They're a tiny country. They do they have done traditionally what's called hedging um, in a geopolitical sense. So they've generally tried to keep everyone happy. So they provided a home for the Taliban when they were exiled. They have really strong relations with Iran, but at the same time, they have the biggest US air base in the Gulf. So they've always tried to kind of keep people happy. And football was one part of this nation building. They wanted to show that if we bring the World Cup here, we A, show that we're kind of respected members of the international community because we can deliver on promises. You know, we say we'll host this, we will, which gives them a certain level of credibility uh, among the international community, for want of a better phrase. And another part of it is nation building, if you think about it. I mean, by Qatar hosting the World Cup, the one thing that they guaranteed was that everyone in the world knew what Qatar was, which a lot of people did not know prior to hosting the World Cup. And like it was a big nation branding exercise. So they hosted the World Cup. Uh, they've also hosted other major sports events like the World Athletics Championships, the World Handball Championships. There is constant speculation that they'll bid for the Olympic Games in 2036. Uh, and they've also invested massively in European football. They bought Paris Saint-Germain, they've sponsored clubs like Roma, which which puts Qatar Airways on the front of their shirt. So all that builds up an idea that that this is its own country uh, in the West. And that is, you know, there's a, if listeners are interested in reading more on the topic, there's a really good book by a sociologist called John McManus titled Inside Qatar. And he says that this was partly as a hedge to avoid invasion from Saudi Arabia. And it, it, it projects power, but also projects just the idea of the nation. Now, whether, I mean, countries have always used sports for their own ends and political leaders have always used sports for their own ends. And that, I think, are, are some, of the, some of the reasons why they wanted to toast the World Cup. I know I'm kind of going on, but one other element of it is actually diversification. So, I mean, they're sitting on a gold mine, but it is going to run out. I mean, they're, maybe they've got another couple of hundred years of gas reserves, but Qatar would be aware that, you know, where they are, they're near the equator, they're down by the sea, they're massively at risk, you know, and there is a pragmatic realisation that they need to diversify their economy. Like, I mean, something like 80 odd percent of their income comes from the oil and gas they take from the ground. So this is great for tourism, you know, I mean, this is, uh, you know, this is a, this is the idea that um, you invite the world to Qatar, they'll sit on a comfortable Qatar Airways plane, they'll fly into Doha, they'll be brought to a swanky hotel down by the waterfront, they'll go see some football, everything will, in their view, work nicely and they'll want to come back. Hi, Laura Byrne here. I think it was fitting really this year that Time magazine named the women of Iran as the heroes of 2022. When we think of the recent protests in Iran, what's extraordinary really is the pace at which they took hold and caught the imagination of so many Iranian women in particular. The strict Islamic regime in Iran has had an iron grip on the population for decades now under the gaze of Ayatollah Khomeini, its supreme leader. So what changed this year and what was it about the loss of Masa Amini in particular, the young woman who died in the custody of the much feared morality police? Masa was detained for wearing her hijab improperly, according to these men. After her death, we saw Iranian women across the country and throughout the world taking to the streets. They cut their hair in an act of defiance against these prohibitive laws. Iranians have since faced a brutal crackdown by the country's security forces. There have been mass arrests, detention and even execution of protesters. 
In order to provide clarity on all of this for our listeners, we were joined by Dr. Paola Rivetti. She's Associate Professor in Politics and International Relations at DCU. Her research focuses on the government of societies and politics in the Middle East. Here, she explains just what's unique about this unprecedented wave of protests in Iran. So there's a lot that feels different about these protests. Um, Something I should say is that what we are seeing today in Iran, in terms of numbers, are not the biggest um, protests that we have seen, say, in the past 10 years. In 2019, uh, for instance, protests were bigger in terms of numbers, in terms of uh, people uh, who were in the streets protesting. But this time they are very different because they, I think they really, um, they, they really target one of the foundations of the Islamic Republic. The body of women it's of course not only in Iran, this is not valid for the Islamic Republic only, this is valid everywhere, but the body of women is, is, is really crucial for the question of state building, the question of nation building, the question of identity, who is with us, who's not, uh, who's not with us, who is part of the in-group, who's part of, you know, who's not, who's out of our group. In 1979, Khomeini said that women the Iranian women were in charge of showing to the world the strength of the Islamic revolution. And this instrument to show that strength was the chador. And this is just, you know, just a, an example of how crucial the body of women, how they behave, um, how we behave, how, you know, what kind of dress we use um, is really central to the construction of, of identity. So by protesting, and criticizing the obligation uh, of veiling, um, Iranian women are really targeting one of the core, one of the foundations of of the Islamic Republic. And this is why I think these protests are really different. And I think regardless of how they will end, regardless of when and if these protests will end, I think this is a point of no return. There's also something something else that makes these protests very different, and that's the importance given to um, to the ethnic minority. The fact that Massa uh, was a Kurdish woman is really important. We can see that in the most important and famous slogan uh, uh, chanted by the protesters: "Woman, life, freedom." which is, you know, which comes from directly, comes from um, Kurdish uh, political uh, groups. This has a double meaning. On the one side, it is a way to, um, uh, to, 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 to really speak about the, this long-standing discrimination that um, ethnic minorities, so non-Persian minorities in Iran have been subjected to. This, of course, goes uh, goes on since before the establishment of the Islamic Republic and since before the Islamic Revolution. But definitely the Islamic Republic has, hasn't dismantled uh, something that we might call Persian suprematism, uh, but also speaks to, once again, to, I think, the question of anti-patriarchal politics. Because this slogan basically says that if women live in dignity and have a dignified life, then there's freedom for everybody. I think this is an extremely progressive and extremely important um, aspect of these protests. 
it's Nikki Ryan here. I'm one of the producers of The Explainer, and my pick is an episode that we considered recording many, many times in recent years, but never felt that the time was quite right. Unfortunately, this year it was, and we brought University of Limerick economist Stephen Kinsella on the podcast to look at whether Ireland is heading towards another recession. The cost of living crisis, inflation and the war in Ukraine has created what appears to be the backdrop to a slowdown in our economy. To what extent that manifests itself remains to be seen, but presenter Michelle Hennessy wanted Stephen to explain what the long-term impact from another recession could be. Well, I think that this government, uh, and I've talked with most of the members of the government about this, has really understood the need, the deep and abiding need, not to short-term cut uh, capital expenditure. So don't stop the children's hospital from being built. Don't stop the the roads. Don't stop the the railways and so forth. You still need to keep that going. And to be fair, I think they understand that that's it's an important thing that needs to keep going. Um, the other uh, long-term fallout of another recession will be a large increase in technology. I think We're, if COVID taught us anything, it was that we can transact much of the business of the state and much of the business of our lives uh, electronically. I think um, if we have a situation where it costs a fortune to move around the place, uh, we will simply move less. I don't think people are going to switch immediately to bikes and uh, um, uh, e-bikes and so forth, uh, there'll, there'll need to be a bit of expenditure made to keep uh, to make things safe before uh, before that happens. So people will adapt. I mean, the the reality is that we have been adapting to crises now for 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 several decades. You know, somebody who's thirty today has lived through a global economic crisis. They've lived through a sovereign series of sovereign defaults. They lived through the near near death of the euro. Um, they lived through the austerity. They lived through, you know, various housing, health, climate crises. Now they have. Then they had a pandemic, and then there's a you know a, a major war in Europe, and uh, and the climate crisis. You know, uh, and they've done all of this before. You know. A while the cost of of everything has risen. So, are we going to see the return of austerity? I don't think so. I think we, we we've realised that austerity does nothing except create anger and populist policies that give us things like Trump and Brexit. Uh, nobody wants another Trump or another Brexit. So, I think everyone's realised for you know you can imp- influence policies to make government borrowing cheaper that will mean that it governments can continue to do what they need to do and the longer that you can do that for the better it's going to be and so i you so even um, this week or sorry last week uh, christine lagarde was talking about new a new um uh, suite of policies to help stop sovereign borrowing so the borrowing of the state rise too quickly um and uh that'll probably be effective um, and in so doing, it'll make we'll we'll be able to make sure that uh, you know the government can keep the lights on, and we don't have to do things like uh, cut public services and um, make uh, life harder for the average citizen. 
Hi, Aoife Barry here, one of the producers of The Explainer. The clip that I've chosen is from one of our September episodes. The episode's called Why is Ireland So Obsessed with Garth Brooks? And we made it because he was coming here to play his string of gigs in Croke Park. Very highly anticipated gigs. And we wanted to look into his fandom here, why people really love Garth Brooks here and why so many people would pay to go see him in Croke Park. So what we did was we got Christina Finn, who is better known as a political correspondent for the journal, but is also a very big Garth Brooks fan, to talk to us about the fans' point of view. And then we also had the longtime culture journalist Alan and core over as well to give a really fascinating insight into how he first heard about Garth Brooks, all about how Garth Brooks's fandom grew here and about things like how the show band era paved the way for Brooks's success. So here's a clip. It's the first question that Michelle Hennessy, the presenter, put to Alan Core, where he gives some really interesting background on the country superstar. Alan, I want to bring you in here. This is a good time to go back a bit again to the 90s because the Croke Park gigs wouldn't have been Garth's first visit to Ireland. Can you tell us about his first concerts here? Yeah, I mean, his first shows here, I think, were a five-night stand in the Point, which is now the Three Arena, in 1994. Now, what it, what surprised me about uh, Garth's first gigs here way back nearly 30 years ago was how long it took him to get to Ireland, because the first time I would have seen him live was in a theatre in London, I think, in late 1990 on the No Fences tour, and I met him afterwards for an interview when I was working for the RTE Guide, and I found him to be a very genuine, uh, you know, grounded individual who was already uh, somewhat of a superstar in America. His first album had sold 10 million copies. That was a self-titled first album. And No Fences was heading up the charts as well. He was about to do the crossover into the pop and rock charts. So after I saw him play live and after I interviewed him, I said, why hasn't this guy come to Ireland yet? He's going to be huge over here considering our natural affinity with country music and our love of country music in this country. So when he did arrive here in 1994, it was for five nights in the point. Uh, He sold them out in very quick order and uh, he began to do uh, the press interviews appearing on the Late Late Show and Kenny Live and things like that. So he was already at that point heading to uh, huge stardom in Ireland. The next time he would have played was, I think, two nights in Croker in 1997. And I remember going to that gig and he arrived on stage from a giant hydraulic spaceship. This huge dark gray spaceship kind of came down onto the stage and Gart walked out. And I remember at the, at the time uh, christening him Gart Vader uh, because of the way he had made such a, a brilliant invasion of the, the, the Irish country scene and indeed the, the mainstream charts. So Gart Brooks was, was made for Ireland. And Ireland was made for, for Garth Brooks. So those gigs immediately introduce you to Garth Brooks, the showman. And that's essentially what he is. He's a, a consummate showman who has made that crossover between the traditional values and kind of performances uh, that, that are usually associated with country music to a rock extravaganza. I mean, one of his biggest influences, Kiss, the American uh, 70s glam rock band. He's also a huge fan of Billy Joel, he's covered Billy Joel's song Shameless. So he has that connection with the rock, the rock extravaganza, as well as the usual, more traditional uh, country music side of things. So when he came to Ireland in 94, he was already massive. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a huge thank you to our producers Nikki Ryan and Aoife Barry for their tireless work throughout the year. And a big thank you to Laura Byrne as well. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's a really great way to make sure other people can discover it, listen and love it as well. Thank you and catch you next time.